WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You're tuned into Exposure, and I'm your host, Daniel Rizal. On tonight's show, you'll hear from our news director, Quinn Hoffman, as he interviews local music artist Joe Hurtler of Joe Hurtler and the Rainbow Seekers on the group's upcoming album, Getting Signed Onto Universal Music Group, and more. We'll go back to me for a story on the Hammocking Club of MSU and their fight to allow hammocking on Michigan State's campus. Quinn Hoffman will return with an inside look of Michigan State Student Union, a students' rights activist group here on campus. He also talks with the Michigan State Division of the Peace Corps to discover more about the group and to discuss the upcoming Peace Corps Week. To get started, here's Quinn Hoffman with Joe Hurtler. You're listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. I'm sitting down right now with Joe Hurdler from the Joe Hurdler and the Rainbow Seekers. What's going on, Quinn? Hey, yeah, you're a uh, pretty pretty big name around here, right? You're uh, got a got a got a band that came from Lansing. Um, but if anyone who's listening right now may not have heard of this, so give us a quick breakdown. What is Joe Hurdler and the Rainbow Seekers? Um, yeah, we're we're a, we're a six piece band out of out of Lansing, Michigan. Um, we kind of jump all over the place as far as as genre goes, but uh, yeah, we it, it kind of tends to be like funky jam rock with uh undercurrents of folk and singer songwriter. All stuff. right, all right, cool. Um, so where and how did the band start originally? Um, the band started on the border of Lansing and East Lansing. About half of us were were MSU students at the time, um, myself coming from Mount Pleasant um, at CMU. But there was a house right next to El Oasis um, where we first started hanging out. I want to say the first time I hung out with my band, we were actually making beats, like these live analog hip-hop beats for TJ Duckett's nephew, um, Dante. And, yeah, I, th- I want to say that was one of the first times I really hung out with them. Um, but just prior to that, I had recorded these these things called the quilted attic sessions in in the in the same house and and they were just these like live sessions i was very my music was very folk tinged at the time um yeah it it was just a a really fun time we were all forced into close quarters together and and became friends uh actually my bandmates were in were in the band loon at the time which was a, a popular um east lansing band back in the day um but loon was kind of entering hiatus mode and i you know picked up the members when when that happened so um yeah it's been pretty much the same lineup ever since we've just added members but um yeah the core dudes are still still around and kicking awesome um where where'd the name come from the joe hurdler and the rainbow seekers um right around that time we were listening to a record by joe sample called rainbow seeker he was a heavily sampled uh, artist um in the hip-hop world 
uh, especially back in like you know, mid '90s, I would say. Like Tupac, one of his songs is, has a prominent Joe sample sample on it. Um, but yeah, he just has this awesome, awesome album cover where he's like standing all stoic and lofty, and there's a rainbow behind him. And I remember saying something like, "Man, if we were ever in a band, we should, or we were, if we were ever in a band together, we should be called like the Rainbow Seekers." <laughs> Sounds just stupid enough to like work and and apparently it was beautiful um if you weren't named joe hurdler and the rainbow seekers what what would be the the second choice for the name oh god i don't know you know i never really thought about that we always just kind of sat around we're like wow this name is terrible it's like (laughs) the worst band name you could ever ever pick um but i don't think anyone ever like challenged it yeah hey this is we should actually be called this like joe hurdler and like the bro squirtlers or something i don't know there was never like an answer yeah um <laughs> so you yeah you just mentioned that album but uh do you have any other musical inspiration when it comes to your your music um boy we love d'angelo um i would say for like band favorites d'angelo is huge um i've been like really getting into gospel lately um which have been, you know, obviously it's certainly been done before where a bunch of white dudes are, like, trying to translate gospel into their own music. But I, you know, trying to, like, feed off that a little bit with some of this new music. Um, we're also, like, big fans of Tycho. Um, I am a huge fan of, of house music and, and techno. Um, so I'm always pushing for a 4-4 dance beat. And I think I think some of the energy is inspired by, by dance music, um, kind of in the way... That you get a whole bunch of people together, just kind of letting go for for a live event. Um, so you know we're pulling influences all over, but really it's just you know when you sit down and actually write a piece of music, it's just a culmination of a whole bunch of experiences kind of coming together in a moment, mm-hmm. um, and you translate those the best you can using music as the medium. Awesome. Um, so we hear you've just been signed to mm-hmm. a new label. Um, what label is that? So it's uh, Bad Mascot Records. Um, it's uh, a subsidiary of uni- the Universal Music Group. Um, Sam Riddle actually pitched our name uh, probably about a year and a half ago. He is an MSU alumni, former station director of The Impact, good right, friend right. of the Rainbow Seekers. He's kind of you know been in our crew for a long time. But you know it always was like real wishy-washy. We never really knew. It was always kind of like Sam being like, hey, like I'm totally pitching your name to like a record label. And we're like, cool man and then you know all of a sudden a year and a half later it like actually happened um i think it was at south by southwest like where they you know took us to dinner and, and sat us down and we're like hey this is what we like actually want to do sorry it's been taking so long um what was the original question i think i've been rambling <laughs> <laughs> uh just uh yeah what what have you been signed to but i mean you kind of answered that so uh were there any other labels that were a possibility not really i mean I, we hadn't even really considered like pitching ourselves to a label you know we've always sort of just been you know doing it ourselves i mean granted we have like the rainbow seeker ultra team network um that is is as vast as ever um we have lots of people that have, have helped us out we're very dependent on a lot of them but um yeah ultimately it's just been our crew kind of like doing its thing so when the label came about it was like you know honestly it felt like you know, another Matt Altruda coming into the picture or another, like, Kevin Meyer with Meridian. Just, like, an, another, you know, group of people that were interested in, in helping us out. Maybe in this 
in this case, a, a little more on the business side of things. But, um, yeah, it, I really liked um, Josh, our our, um, our our contact there. Um, he was just a, a really cool dude. He's a U of M grad, so uh, he's got Michigan roots, and he manages Mayor Hawthorne. Um, and yeah, I just liked him from the get go, and and I liked the you know the vision of this this new imprint that they were starting and it just seemed like a good idea dope um do you have a uh, favorite band that you've played with before hmm man i mean robert glasper probably we we played with him at common we played right before him at common ground on the same stage this last year and it was crazy because there wasn't a whole lot of people there just like brilliant I, I would say as far as like modern jazz composers that are I'm involved in the hip hop world. Okay. Um, I'd say like he's one of the best right now. Just an, inc- an incredible, incredible musician with a wonderful band. Um, but yeah, playing with Robert Glasper was like a, a special moment. And and we asked him afterwards. Actually, Aaron, our sax player, did. He's like, Robert, did you did you see our set? Like, how were we? Were we good? <laughs> and he's like, I didn't see your set, but I'm sure it was like effing awesome. <laughs> we were like, yeah. <laughs> So we shared a green room with them, and I just felt, like, totally unworthy. They're Jeez. so cool. We, we, seeing Tycho at Electric Forest was, was pretty awesome. As a band, you know, we, we got to kind of all see him um, together, and that was just a wonderful experience as well. Right, right. So you're going on tour now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where's the tour take place? Where's it going through? Boy, I should know these things specifically. Right now, when I think of our tour, I just think of a big oval around the, the U.S., um, uh, there seems to be little stars and like <laughs> the mountains and the, the West coast. <laughs> so that's like when I think tour, I'm like, I'm going to be a gone for like two months and then be West because <laughs> we haven't been out to the West yet. And we're so pumped to get out there. Okay. But you have been on tour before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not nothing this extensive though. Honestly, like, you know, I think the longest we've done is like seven-ish days, really. Okay. Maybe uh, a little longer in some cases, but... When you were on tour before, uh, how'd you pass the time? Oh, we have our means. So we, we just got a sprinter, which was like huge victory, because if you knew us before, we had like the world's like creepiest, just the worst van of all time. Like we, we crammed like 13 people into it and drove 27 hours to South by Southwest, which, which passing time was difficult then. Um but uh, yeah, now we got this sprinter. So like our last little tour, we wa- we like killed the entire first game of Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, we're avid Super Smash Melee players, so okay. we're all gamers. That's the um, best one. Melee do you play Melee? I play Melee. Oh man, we follow it. So like we, we're we're like trying to get like the Smash community to come out to our, yeah. our shows as we travel. So like in New York, we had some guys come out once, and um. Yeah, we're all like big fans of like pro smash. Yeah, and just yeah. like honestly pro esports in general. Yeah. Um like Micah is a big StarCraft fan, my keyboard player. Um But yeah, so we play a ton of Smash. It's like nonstop too. So I'm a Marth player, so you can okay, uh, okay. you can all hate on me later. My um, my roommate was a, a Smash guy, he got me into it, and it's unbelievable how competitive that game oh, can man. get. And the level of depth is there's just like infinite things to talk about with smash and then you find random people who are like smash <laughs> and you're like smash and then you're friends instantly like quinn it's great to great to be your friend now <laughs> like you too joe you but too. uh 
yeah so we play played a lot of smash we just got double dash um which is like i, I arguably you could say the, the best of uh, the most competitive of the mario kart um yeah we're, we're all gamers like we find our ways to play stuff i i bring my laptop on so i play a lot of like indie pc games on it stuff but all right so uh Kind of to broaden things out, I suppose, uh, what is kind of the greater direction of the band right now, the current direction, if you will? I mean, if there was like a true mountain peak to get to the, you know, to get to, I, I think it would be that like all of my bandmates um, and our team are, are feeding their families off this and that we're, we're still happy and like happy um, with the art that we're making. I think that's like, if there was a mountain peak I could like sit and rest on, that would be it. Um, there's generally always another peak to get to once you get to to one of them. But yeah, yeah I I really do believe like my goal in this is to a you know feed our families hopefully, and then I think even beyond that is just to kind of give people an experience where they can kind of come and not have to really worry about who they are and just be immersed in a setting. Um, a musical setting um, where, you know, they don't have to worry too much about their lives and just come in and enjoy the music and enjoy the presence of those around them. All right, so uh, kind of a wrap-up thing here. Uh, you said you've been on tour before and you've mm-hmm. been, played a lot of shows. Any any specific instance that kind of hits your mind that was just an interesting story? Boy, interesting story. This was, like, way back in the day. I think we were a four-piece. It was in Mount Pleasant. It was, like, a street fair. It was a really fun show. It was, like, right when, like, things were kind of getting exciting just in, in Mount Pleasant, where I was going to school at the time. And uh, real cold out. And, you know, people were drinking and moving about in the crowd. Some dude just, like, drunkenly jumped on stage. And at the time, my drummer used to wear this big Yeti helmet. It was massive. It had, like, these antlers in it that were like glued in it looked totally crazy but he just like stumbled over my drummer took the helmet off put it on his head and then proceeded to stage dive and i just it was like slow motion as everyone just moved away from like where his body was about to make an imprint but there was like two little tiny girls that didn't move away and just got flattened by this dude (laughs) with these antlers on and, and, and like, he just hit, and they just laid there. And everyone was, like, sat, like we kind of kept playing, but it was, like, went into, like, crumbly loop mode. And we are just, like, like, that's what it sounded like, kind of, as this dude just, like, flat over these, these girls. And they were, like, hurt. And everyone was, like, oh, crap. And then, you know, you keep playing and just kind of go, what the hell was that? Yeah. No one got hurt, but that was a that was a weird one. Awesome. <laughs> well, I hope no one gets hurt on this upcoming tour you got coming on. We're very safe. You know, we try our best. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming in, Jeff. Thank you, Everybody's dancing. It's not the snow tomorrow. I hope that someday we'll find And try to reach out some more these days.
move to a story by yours truly, covering the battle between hammockers and arborists here at MSU. You're tuned into Exposure, and this is Daniel Rezel with representatives from the Hammocking Club of MSU. How are you doing today? Uh, we're good. Could you introduce yourselves and your positions at the MSU Hammocking Club? I am Marissa Trupiano, and I'm the vice president. And I'm Matt Shalino, and I'm the president. Could you give me an overview of how the hammocking club got started? Um, so our two founding members, Justin and Nate, were hammocking in their favorite spot on campus one day when a um, representative from landscaping had come by and said, you need to take these down. It's against campus policy to hammock on campus because it damages the trees. So they kind of created this club to bring people together and fight as a team to kind of make it allowed on campus so we can't get in trouble or get fined or anything like that. So the original founders essentially acted as activists for hammocking on campus. Is that kind of the spirit of creating the club? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and uh, have you looked into the MSU policy at all, if there really was any infringement? Um. I don't know if we actually have looked at the policy, but I know when Justin and Nate and everyone were forming the club, they looked at it. It did. There was something along the lines, like very blurry-wise, that we couldn't technically hammock on campus because, you know, Michigan State's like very big into like forestry and stuff that mm. is damaging the trees when people aren't using the hammocks the right way or slacklining or 
climbing on trees, I guess, is illegal here. I don't know. You mentioned uh, when I first interviewed you for the, the features, you mentioned that there were some local arborist groups that got involved. Do you ever happen to get in contact with them again, or is it more of a Michigan State violation? I mean, we've been trying to, like, get in contact with people, but no such luck. We've, like, emailed, like, the departments of, like, horticulture and forestry, and we've met with some of the, like, an arborist at Iowa Safety Function Committee thing. But we're still working on it. I mean, basically in the winter is when we're really going to try and get in touch because now, like, we're not sitting in trees. We might as well try and make it legal here. And uh, have you discussed with any professors here any uh, arborist-related majors or any of the plant biology professors about if you actually are doing any harm to the trees here? Um, We attended um, a function put on by by the EFFS Club, which is the Ecological Food and Farming Stewardship. And um, they basically brought in Paul Schwartz, which is the head arborist on campus, and kind of gave a tree safety course, so how to preserve the trees on campus and things like that. They didn't really touch on hammocking, and he kind of ran away before we got a chance to talk to him. So we're in the process of, like, emailing him and trying to talk about more about hammocking rather than, like, riding a driving a car under a tree or stuff like that so it was pretty cool though if you do get to talk to him talk to him we learned some cool things about the roots and like driving on the grass don't do that now (laughs) we'll yell at you because now we know (laughs) uh what are some of the current efforts that uh you two and the rest of eboard are currently putting in place to i guess fight for hammocking on campus uh i mean like what we're trying to get in place we talked about over like the beginning of last semester is talking to the departments and trying to come up with, like, a sort of compromise. So it's not just we want hammocking everywhere, free reign. It's more like let's set up, like, plans and, like, trying to set up uh, what we call hammocking safe zones where we could work with the departments and maybe set up specific areas. You know, like, if you're in hammocking club, you'll have a map and a card so you won't, like, you can flash and be like, I took the safety class. And then you'd properly learn and all that. So it's all more of the guidelines of safety and um, teaching people how to properly set up a hammock. And I think that's where, like, the liability comes from, like, the arborists and stuff. Sure. And uh, so what is the current uh, legal status, per se, of hammocking on campus? If I were to go string up a hammock tomorrow, you know, in the middle of Red Cedar, so what repercussions would I face? I would say if you hang it up by the red cedar, you should be fine. If you're on more of a main road, because I personally had an experience, I was out by the urban planning building and which is right on, um, right by the Com Arts building. So it's on one of those main roads right by like infrastructure planning and all that. And I had somebody come up to me and they're like, you need to take this down right now or you're going to get fined. So I think it's a matter of where you set it up it's not technically allowed it's kind of like at your own risk type thing right now but (laughs) yeah we're like kind of extremists you know (laughs) we're not gonna tell you to hammock but if you happen to it's all right with us just don't mention our name (laughs) so uh, other than that incident did you guys ever have any other run-ins with uh any msu personnel over hammocking or maybe any any of uh, your members uh, run-ins? I don't know. I mean, some of our members have. We're always, like, on the lookout. It's like when you sit in your hammock, keep one eye open kind of deal. Like, you see the, like, cars drove by, and you're like, oh, my God, put it down. Or sit your head down in the hammock, and hopefully they won't see you. 
That's when the camo hammocks come in here. <laughs> <laughs> Hide in the bushes. <laughs> um, now, what if you could, I guess, condense a sort of legal statement that you would you would be proposing as your final ending statement to MSU over the status of hammocking here at MSU? What what would you say to them? A legal statement. That's yeah, kind of kind of, kind of your uh, your uh, your defense <laughs> to hammocking here on campus. Uh, I think as long as you're very smart about it and you're not being very, like, if you're going to hammock on a tree that's an inch in diameter, obviously that's going to cause a problem. But if you're smart about it, if it doesn't look like the tree is, like, falling apart on you, I think it's a little extreme to be not allowed. Um, I think it's all about common sense and kind of at your own risk at this point. But Yeah, I mean, legal statements, I'd have to, like, take my time. Matt Marissa ver- version, don't be an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> Use your eyes. Look at the tree. Don't be a tree killer. And so we'll come find you. Yeah, I've seen people hammocking on trees where there's signs like those plaques on it. Like, don't do that. That's just common sense. Now, earlier um, I heard you guys discussing some emails that you had there on the iPad. Was there anything <clears throat> that you'd like to share about the hammocking club? Um, just in regards to the email, we've been, like, going through them, and when I did email the Department of Horticulture and Forestry, it was just along the same things that we've been talking about, like, hey, get at us, in, like, a more formal sense, obviously. Mm. (laughs) Get at us, you know, we're really, like, enthusiastic, we want to, like, try and figure out a way for people to, you know, be active, you know, it's MSU, we're all about the campus, we don't want to ruin it, but we also want to be able to stay and, like, you know, like, have fun, lay around in some grass, or trees, leaves, shrubbery. So have you heard back from the horticulture group yet? Not yet. I'm going to keep hassling them. Maybe we'll <laughs> knock on some doors. <laughs> Did you have any sort of... Communication any, like, between them? Well, any issues with communication? Were they ever rude or impolite to you, or were they friendly with any they were, exchanges that you had with them? They weren't rude, because obviously it's like, they're professors, like, they're going to be nice. But it wasn't a professional standpoint kind of off-putting that they didn't they took so long to like get in contact with us it was a little bit of discouragement on our end but they are busy the professors they have other lives than dealing with us activists (laughs) on their side um but we are trying to keep in contact as much as possible and i think one of the great things about hammocking club is that like we try and partner with as many groups as possible along the same like interesting guidelines and our main like focus is that maybe if we have more people to you know be in our interests, it will catch the eye of more of the departments. Where do you see the hammocking club a few months from now? Hopefully up and up. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully having a greater outreach program, but depends on the people. Sure. Uh, Is there anything else that you'd like to add about the MSU hammocking club or about anything that we've discussed today? Join the club. Yeah, join the club. If you're interested at all, you don't have to have a hammock to join. Um, We do a lot of things that don't involve hammocks as well. So um, we'll have just, like, times that we just all hang out. We'll go – we went and played laser tag and bowling one day. So it's really fun. It's not just about hammocking. We're all about a whole bunch of stuff. So, Well, thank you for coming in today, Matt and Marissa. Well, thank you for having us. After finishing my interview with the Hammocking Club, I was wondering where the university stood on this issue. I came in contact with Paul Swartz, the campus arborist here at MSU, and he forwarded me an email he sent to Justin Seikert, one of the original founders of the Hammocking Club. 
The email, dating from November 2012, stated the following. I have discussed your request with other university officials, including MSU police, and we are all in agreement. Due to the potential for tree damage from this activity and to comply with the current university ordinance, Chapter 24.01, no person shall break or cut branches or flowers or fruit or otherwise damage or mutilate any tree, shrub, herbaceous plant or flower upon property governed by the Board of Trustees or removed from the same any identification tag or sign. The tree damage could occur from the mounting straps girdling the limbs or tree and also from branch breakage. Consequently, your club's activity of using the trees and branches for support of the hammocks cannot be permitted. After reading this email, it seemed to me that things weren't looking too hot for the hammocking club. I gave Paul a call earlier today to see if this email has any relevance at all three years on, but uh, Paul still stands firmly by his decision to protect the trees on campus, also noting that the University of Michigan has their own complete ban on using hammocks at all on their campus. However, because of the hammocking club's continued persistence, Paul said he is willing to make compromise with the group in the near future. For Impact News, I'm Daniel Rizal. Compromise with the group in the near future. For Impact News, I'm Daniel Rizal. You're listening to Impact Exposure. First floor. Hey, what floor are you going to? <clears throat> oh, uh, three. Thanks. <coughs> hey, didn't we uh, have... Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny to, <laughs> to see you, because I <coughs> thought maybe we could... Uh, would you ever want to... Um, <coughs> I was wondering if you, if I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. Second oh, floor. I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. That's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No, don't touch me. What's wrong with you? Oh, sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Free. Studies show that three quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Or at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89 FM. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime Time. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. Only on Impact Primetime. Prime Time. Now back to Impact Exposure. Impact News Director Quinn Hoffman reports on another story of student rights here on campus. Joining me now is Gabby Samford, uh, one of the lead organizers of a uh, student union uh, yes. on campus here. Yes. How are you doing today, Gabby? I am doing all right. So tell us a little bit about the student union. So we know what like unions are, right, for like work. But what about a student union? 
All right. So it all kind of started with the idea of um, the 2012 uh, student union strike in Quebec. Um, they mobilized uh, like 200,000 students to go on strike um, against a 75% tuition hike from the Quebec government. Uh, they got they kind of got stuff done. And student unions already have a really strong history in Canada, um, which is kind of why they already had that base. But we were like, okay, we have a lot of stuff wrong here with our school. Obviously, we're not heard. We have exorbitant, like, tuition hikes and, like, tuition raises and stuff. Um, why not do that? Like, why can't we do it here? So basically, that's kind of where it started from. But. All right. And then what does the student union allow you to do? It kind of, what it does is it pulls together a lot of resources from a lot of different organizations around MSU. Right now, there are actually a lot of like really strong like organizers, like MSU Greenpeace has done stuff. Um, the sexual assault people have done stuff, for lack of a better word. They don't really have a name. And it's just kind of getting everyone together and um, trying to make changes. Kind of okay. like that. Um, so is it kind of like a... Power in numbers, kind of thing, where when the students band together, the administration or whomever uh, has to listen to you. Yeah, no, because in all honesty, that's exactly what it is. Because in my view, in my view, because um, that's the only thing we have against them. We don't have the money. We don't have the legal representation. We have nothing else but our power and mm. numbers. So right, yeah. Why? Why is tuition a big issue for the student unions? Right now, it's kind of like. We're kind of shifting towards more of uh, universities being run as businesses instead of institutions for education. So we put a lot of money into research. We put a lot of money into kind of um, advertising, making the university look good. And there's kind of this focus away from, like, we want to make education affordable for everyone. It's just people are really, like, just for this generation in general, like, it's really, like, people are going to, like, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And, like, for what kind of education are we really getting? Is it really, like... It, it kind of makes sense with, like, community college being, you know, about $1,000 per semester. And then at a university, it's 20 times that. Yeah, but is the, is the education 20 times better? Right, right. Too? So it's, like, what are we getting out of this? Mm. And it, it seems as though, really, the board of trustees aren't doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. And it's not that's not a priority for them. Right, right. Okay, and then... What were some other uh, other issues that the student union was kind of formed around that the student union is kind of looking at? Yeah, so um, just with, like, just general, like, students do not have a voice in how the university is run. Around the George Will protest, we had, like, 70,000 signatures. Granted, a lot of them probably were from outside of the university, but also we are a public university, so that matters. Um, a ton of uh, his the history department... ARCA, COGS, GEU, a bunch of student and, like, faculty organizations were like, we don't want this person here. But the board did not listen. President Simon did not listen to us. And it's like, if you're not going to listen to us about a commencement speaker, what else are you ignoring? Like, in all honesty, though. And it's like, yeah, $47,000, like, that's like Trump changed to them. Like, I know you don't. I know you have the money. Right. We know you have the money. Like, it doesn't matter. Just cancel it. Mm -hmm. um, how many people are in this union? And I mean, is is it officially called a union now? 
Um, yeah, so we're kind of in the process of just kind of getting our, like, base numbers down. I would say about maybe around 30 to 60 is a very rough estimate. Um, we kind of meet at an awkward time during the week, too. So it's just a lot of people have obligations. But, um, yeah, I don't know if we call ourselves a union. I personally think it's union. I would like it to be a union. Other people want it to be kind of like a collective or, like, a resource for other groups, but right. we'll figure it out. Right. Um, yeah, so do you think there would be anyone that would object to the idea that Michigan State has a student union right now, or do you think that's it's all kind of subjective of what you're calling what groups? I think the idea of a union is important. Um, I don't know if people are ready to call themselves a union yet just because of the it has a pretty – pretty bad connotation right, in the yeah. u.s like we don't have mm-hmm. right now unions are not strong mm-hmm. specifically labor unions but um i mean i think it's important i don't really think we stand for everyone in michigan state right now just because msu doesn't also also doesn't have a very strong like activism movement or activism kind of like history mm-hmm. as compared to like maybe u of m like some california schools so there's that but how how often do you guys meet, and is it like open to everyone? Or yeah, it's been um pretty open to everyone. Yeah, we're trying to make it more transparent. Um, but so far it's been Thursdays eight to ten, <laughs> which is a pretty pretty long, and you know it can be a pretty big commitment for a lot of people. Um, but yeah, we're just I think right now we're trying to get our numbers up and like trying to get people interested. What do you normally cover in those two hours? <sighs> um. So far, it's just kind of like we're trying to build like relationships within the student union right now, just trying to make sure like we have some kind of base to work off of, um, kind of just sharing ideas of how we want it to run, how can we make sure that everyone's voices are being heard, making sure we're not like oppressing each other. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. What do you think? Uh, you mentioned earlier that. Uh, there was kind of a student union uh, revolution in uh, Quebec a while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, what what do you what do you think the global look to student unions is, and where do you think America falls on that scale? Yeah, so um, that's a good question. From what research that I've done, not a ton, but enough. Um, Quebec and I know the UK has a pretty strong student union movement. Um, a lot of it is pretty like top down hierarchical, but. Um, they're there. They've been there for a while. Um, Canada has been legally recognized since the 1960s, and, like, Europe, they're around. Um, they have some stuff in Latin America, too. There's some stuff in Chile, and Mexico has, like, is... They have student unions there, like, within the faculty unions and, like, custodial workers' unions. Right. Um, Does America have any of these, or is this uh... kind of... Is this kind of what they have right now? These kinds of small, fifty pr- people. Yeah, yeah. People this groups. Is, it's kind of like that. Yeah, the student union movement um, itself isn't very strong in the U.S. right now. I know that Ohio University like took over their student government, but they've been having some issues apparently. But yeah, we don't have like a really strong like. Yeah. yeah uh, base. Why do you think that is? Do you think uh, this has something to do with? Uh, you know, just how um, American values are, how we're brought up, or do you think it has something to do with our 
you know, schools and institutions? Yeah, I just, I really think a lot of it stems from just like the, the kind of almost like defamation of unions in general, like they've really come into like less power and like it, the, the idea is not really there, I think, that like students should have a say in their university. Like we were taught that education is a privilege and that you have to work to get it. And once you're there, I think a lot of people think like I should, I'm just lucky I'm here. So I should just sit down, shut up and like take what I can get. Are there uh, are there any more things that uh, you you would like to say? Any things that you can think of that you wanted to get out here on the radio? I would say if you are like if anyone is like thinking about maybe partaking in like any kind of student activism group, just really go for it. I I started organizing like this year, and it's not that hard to do, and it's really awesome. You meet really cool people. So, um, and if somebody was thinking the same thing about specifically this student union group. Yeah, what would you say to them? Uh, you should definitely come check us out, and any of us will be willing to do a one-on-one with you, get coffee, talk about what you want, what you're pissed off about, anything like that. And just, I don't know, just check it out. You might like it, so, yeah. Awesome. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, no problem. You're listening to Impact Exposure. just received word of an invasion! Speak quickly, maggot! Is it those Canadians again? I don't know, sir! We've just heard that Monday at 8 p.m. the impact will be invaded! You stupid ninny! That's the Asian invasion! It's the poppiest, catchiest, and all-around toe-tapping his music out of the Korea, Japan, and China! But, sir, I'm no good with Asian dialects! Shut up and listen to the music, private! That catchy beat knows no language barrier! Now move out, everyone! Sir, yes, sir! The Asian invasion. Monday nights from 8 till 10 on The Impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Thursday nights from 10 until 2 a.m. Listen to the Hours of Power, the scariest and only metal show in the mid-Michigan area. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. Close off tonight, Quinn Hoffman talks with the MSU Peace Corps Division in lieu of the upcoming Peace Corps Week. Right now I'm joined by Jim Cave, who is the recruiter for uh, the Peace Corps here at MSU. Hey guys, nice to be talking to you. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about this? Um, first off, let's just cover the basics. What What's the Peace Corps? So the Peace Corps is a U.S. government agency that was founded actually here in Michigan by President Kennedy in the 60s. It was actually at University of Michigan, so not here, which kind of stinks, but pretty close enough, you know. And what the basic goal of the Peace Corps is to help developing countries accomplish their goals and their priorities, as well as promoting awareness of Americans and our sort of lifestyle um, abroad as well as bringing what we learn in other countries about their cultures, customs, as well as just any sort of skills we learn and bringing them back here. I think the second goal about sort of teaching people about Americans is especially important since we kind of have movies and all these other things now that sort of influence perceptions um, that people might think they know what we're about. 
But it's actually a lot better if they can say, like, hey, I got a friend who's, you know, over here. He's not like everyone on TV or something along those lines. Actually, he's a lot like us. So um, I think that's really cool. It's 27 months of service. So you do, like, three months of training, and then for two years you live in a community and you just try to help out, have a job, things like that. Awesome. So you work as a recruiter here at MSU. So what's the local connection to MSU here? So I'm also a graduate student here, so I go to school here as well. Um, But here at MSU, obviously, we're a pretty big school. We also have a lot of people that do study abroads. There's a lot of research and stuff on campus that focuses globally. So uh, Peace Corps recognizes there's a good connection to be made between MSU and people who want to go out, go into the world, sort of get some service and experience, and maybe try to practice some of the skills that they learned here as students. So that's one of the reasons why we're here on campus. Okay, and so you have an, an actual office here? Yeah, we have an office in 202 of the International Center, and we have office hours every week. Um, I'll just say right now that our email is msupeace at uh, msu.edu. All right. So you yourself served in the Peace Corps, right? Yep. I was in Mali from 2010 to 2012. I worked as an agriculture and environment volunteer. All right. And so what did what did that entail? What did you do? So it's kind of, a, I guess, a lot of different stuff. Um, so for my main project, I did something called Farmers Field Schools, where I went and worked with some farmers sort of sat down in a meeting with them, asked them, you know, what's your guys' problems? What do you want to learn more about? They said something called striga, which is a weed that grows on a lot of their main cereal crops, as well as, as, well as just like drought conditions for trying to grow things. So what we did is me and my counterpart, like my partner in the village that I lived in, it was like 500 people, everyone was a farmer, went and talked to a few people who did research and stuff in Mali, and they suggested a few things. Um, The village gave me a few fields to kind of experiment with. So me and a group of farmers, there's about 15 of us, went out and then every week we'd work to try these experimental plots and then they could see and everyone who wanted to could see for themselves, this is something we might want to try out or this isn't worth our time. But I also, so that was sort of along the agriculture stuff. I also kind of started a garden club, things along those lines. But I think one of the cool things about Peace Corps is that you can do a lot more than what your job title says. So mine was agriculture. But I also taught women's literacy classes, and I tutored English. Um, A few other things, there was, like, really bad road conditions because everything was made of mud. Uh, Mali was the fifth poorest country in the world when I went there. Obviously, there's not a lot of paved roads. There was two villages next to each other. One of them had, like, the school and things. That was where I lived, but there was another village next to it that didn't have any of the sort of utilities or resources that where I lived did. And during the rainy season, it was impossible to get from one village to the other um, unless you did it on foot. So, for instance, if you wanted to get grain or something in my village and bring it back over to your house in the other village, you couldn't do that. So we did some like road construct- construction stuff. I also worked with a women's cooperative to try to increase their shea butter production and make it more marketable. Um, I don't know if you guys know what shea butter is, but it's an additive to chocolate. It's also used like in cosmetics and stuff. Okay. Um, and So, yeah, just a lot of stuff. Like I said, my work uh, focused on agricultural stuff, but I think the coolest part about at least my sort of position as a Peace Corps volunteer was that my sole job for two years was to help my friends and neighbors accomplish their goals. You know, And I have never had a job since... I've done Peace Corps that was like that, 
And before that, I never had a job like that either. So I think it's a really good opportunity um, just to sort of get out there and do what you want to do and help other people do that too. So it's pretty cool. Uh, what are what are the conditions like uh, being on Peace Corps? I, I've, I've been told that sometimes you kind of live like a vagabond, right? Kind of like traveling around uh, by any means necessary, sometimes not getting a shower for many days. Right? So it really depends on, it's kind of important to remember that Peace Corps is all over the world. So I was in West Africa and I was in, I think, conditions that people would sort of consider stereotypical. So I lived in a mud hut in the middle of kind of nowhere. And yeah, I was. I think I'd sort of be vagabondish. I mean, I got to where I lived for the first time on a horse-drawn wagon, you know, because the roads were too bad. A car couldn't get in or out or anything. So I had a someone who would become one of my best friends in the world. But that, you know, the point that I met him, it was just some dude with the horse wagon that was sitting up for me at the end of the road, threw all my stuff in, and then we rode back, you know. Um, it is sort of like, I, you know, where I, where I was living, there was no shower or running water or electricity. If I took a bath or I had to bathe, I did it with a bucket. And we did that like three times a day. It was really hot there, so it felt really good. There's, yeah, so you do live, you know, like I was living a pretty different lifestyle than what I'm used to here. But there's also people who live in huge cities, you know, like in Eastern Europe, or we have volunteers in China that teach English. So, it's there's really a big variety of circumstances and different sort of opportunities available. I think in general that we have sort of if you want to go out into the bush and sort of rough it for 2 years and have like a really different experience, you know, I think that's what most people think of. But if you just want to go someplace, maybe try to get more involved in a community and practice for instance like your Spanish or French skills in an urban setting, you can do that too. So it really differs. Um, there's a lot of different opportunities. Awesome. What do you think the uh, value was to living like that? Do you think do you think that was a good experience? Do you think a lot of people should and and not just living kind of at those bare bones, but also living abroad? Do you think there's a lot to gain from that? I definitely do. Um, so I before I went over to the Peace Corps, I, I'm from Montana, and that's sort of I'd never really been overseas. Uh, there's a few things that I think that I didn't even really understand before I got there. Some of them seem really dumb. For instance, I knew obviously people spoke other languages than English, you know, that foreign languages existed. I just didn't realize what that actually meant until I was someplace where I had people that I really wanted to talk to that really wanted to talk to me, but we couldn't talk to each other. You know, like, I think that's a phenomenon that people don't understand until it actually happens to you on a regular basis or until... Everyone that you know is like that, right? So that's really cool. Um, I think just knowing that there's other lifestyles and that there's other ways of life, societies organize themselves differently, that doesn't mean that it's bad, better, or worse. I think that that's something that's really, really good to get to know. I also think where you talk about globalization so much, um, and it's you hear it all the time, right? It's one of these things that it's we're in a globalized world or whatever, if you, it's, I have a very, very different frame of what that means after living someplace, not only that's not the United States, but a place that in some ways is very different than ours, but in a lot of ways, um, it's it's pretty similar, you know, like I think most of my friends in Mali could come here to East Lansing, hang out at my house with my friends here, and we'd still get along well. They'd probably have some interesting questions and like, what are you guys doing, you know, that sort of thing, but at the same time, I think that 
they'd get along Fridolin just well, just as well. So I think it's a very valuable experience. Um, can can you say anything to how uh, serving the Peace Corps looks on a resume? Obviously, it sounds really impressive, but do you know do you know what employers have said about it? What what that kind of yes. feedback is? So there's a few things. There's a lot of there's pretty good career placement after you get done with the Peace Corps. Uh, not only is there you talk about like an alumni network for a college, the same thing happens for service organizations, stuff like that as well. There's a lot of people who've done it over the years, and there's a lot of people in different government agencies and stuff that know what Peace Corps means, sort of the experience, and want to look out for that. Also, I think being in the Peace Corps affords you some opportunities to do some things that you don't necessarily get at a lot of other entry-level jobs. For instance, you can plan a project, do all the monitoring evaluation on it, as well as budget for it, so you can really take the lead in something that... And, you know, in other circumstances, you might not have that opportunity to. Uh, I think those are all really marketable skills. Another thing that I think is pretty valuable is that by definition almost, like every Peace Corps volunteer has to have facilitative skills and gets training in that. I think more and more uh, those sort of abilities to, like, work in a group setting, try to be a proactive and good force in a group to try to work together – something that's going to be really helpful in necessity, like necessity in the future. So if you can put that on your resume, I think that's really good. Another thing is that there's, after you get done, you have a year of what's called non-competitive eligibility for government jobs. And it's not like you're guaranteed a federal job, but it's kind of along the lines of you get to the next step in the hiring process, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty cool. And like I said, with that alumni network, that helps out a lot as well. Awesome. So let's get into a little bit of the details of signing up. Uh, could you, so obviously you go to the, uh, a country other than the United States. Um, do you, do you get to choose where you go or what you do there? Or is that just kind of a lottery? It used to be a lot more of a lottery. That's one of the things that we're trying to bring awareness to here on campus. And the places is that the Peace Corps application process has drastically changed in the last year. So, it used to be like when I signed up, I just said, you know, I want to go. I'll go anywhere. I actually had Africa. It would probably be, I think, the last place in the place that I wanted to go. But it, I said that, I, you know, send me more. I just want the experience. I ended up going to Mali. And I think in hindsight, that's exactly where I should have been. But right now, how it works is that you can go on the website. It's peacecorps.gov. And then there's a, like a tab that says volunteers and then openings. You can click on there and then say, where you want to serve by continent, and then what type of work you want to do, and it lists all of these different individual postings. So now, instead of being like just applying for Peace Corps in general, it's more like you're applying to these individual jobs. For instance, you might want to be an English teacher in Peru. You can apply to be an English teacher in Peru. You also you still have the option of saying, I'll go anywhere, do anything, but you have a lot more, it's more transparent, you have a lot more choice than what you apply to do if you just want to speak go to like a spanish language question uh country sorry and do educational work or hiv aids work you can apply only to those types of positions so i think that's a lot different than what it used to be wow Uh, yeah and additionally the application process used to take about three or four hours they've cut it down to let's an hour process at this point um you might take longer than that because there is an essay i know different people have different sort of processes and how they want to write something that they want to turn in for a job, things along those lines. But you can get it done in about an hour. 
and send it in. It used to take a lot longer than that. So awesome. Another big question I had was, do uh, you don't you don't necessarily this is volunteer work. You don't get paid, right? So you, that's kind of a complicated question. Um, you get paid. You get a stipend, a living stipend, based on where you live. For instance, I made about three hundred dollars a month in Mali. That doesn't sound like a lot of money here, but like I said before, Mali is much poorer than the U.S. is. Three hundred dollars can go a long way. For instance, I probably spent ten or twelve dollars on food and all my living expenses a week. You know, so I spent under sixty dollars on regular stuff every week. So that's a lot of money left over to do other stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a lot less than I'd spend here. In addition to that living stipend that you get, you get something called a readjustment allowance. It's a few hundred bucks every week. It's something, it's a little bit under eight grand in total at the end of two years. It's sort of stashed away on an account that you can't touch. At the end of that, you at the end of your service, you get all that money that you can do whatever you want with. A lot of people travel with it. A lot of people um, might not find a job right away when they get back. So that's a few grand in order to sort of float yourself on until you can get yourself back on your feet after you get back. So You mentioned earlier that at the beginning of March or sometime in March, there's a, a week dedicated to Peace Corps, yeah? Yeah, so it's the first week in March. We're trying to get some sort of activities scheduled for that. I don't know exactly what it'll be at this point. It's kind of early February. But we always have a few informational meetings we're trying to get a few panels, so someone besides me or a few other returned Peace Corps volunteers maybe give a talk, um, maybe host some documentary screening, something along those lines that are based on development or just global issues. We'll see what we can do, but it's just trying to bring awareness towards that too. If you guys want to check out our Facebook page, just search Michigan State Peace Corps, Michigan State University Peace Corps. We post all of our activities, things like that on there. So. All right, and if uh, someone's interested in signing up or just wants to know more, where can they go? So Peace Corps in general, I'd po- I'd point you to you know just peacecorps.gov, the website. I really think, though, if you are interested, come on by Room 202 of the International Center, sit down and have a talk with us. I have another. There's another recruiter on campus, Anna, and we both really, really love talking to people who have questions. And that's the best part of our job is to just sort of help everybody out so come on down. Um, like I said, our email is msupeace at msu.edu. Any other questions, send us that way. We have a Twitter feed, too. So that's the same deal. Just look at Michigan State University Peace Corps. You'll find us, and then you can check that out. Hit us up with any questions you have. So there you go. Awesome. Thanks for coming in, Jim. Yeah, no problem. It's good to talk to everybody. Hope everyone enjoys the day. That's it for the show tonight. Special thanks to our general manager, Ed Glazer, our station manager, Gabriela Saldivia, and our producer, Quinn Hoffman. You can find this episode and all other episodes of Exposure online at impact89fm.org. You've been listening to Exposure, and I've been your host, Daniel Rizal. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. 89FM.